0: That's right. All right. Now, am I really a football player? (laughs) Am I really a baseball player? But did I know the motions? Did you know the motions of what it looked like? Yes. And that is what we're going to find out in a different version that I read here in a minute. God calls what the children of Israel were doing worship charades he was saying you have the practice down you have the motions down of worship but you're missing the point point. and that's what we're going to talk about today but to set that up we have to go all the way back to the beginning in fact we have to go even before creation because the bible says that jesus christ was slain before the foundation of the earth meaning that he knew full and well what would happen there was no surprises and god knew what was going to happen so we see worship in the garden. It's perfect because why? Because there is no sin. And there's God and and man and woman. And they are there in the garden. And, but we know that the fall happens. And their sin comes into the picture. And because sin comes into the picture, God cannot be where there is sin. And we know somewhere in the middle of that, they realized that they were naked. And they had to sow fig leaves. But God, in the reconciliation process, some blood was spilt. Some animals had to die. And we started, back there we can trace a kind of thing that was starting to happen. Sacrifice. And we can go through the entire Bible, because guess what? The Bible is about worship. That's what it is. It's about a story about God and his people. That he wants to have a relationship with you and I. And we see this from the very beginning. We go, to, we go to chapter 3 and God's asking for a sacrifice. We go all the way through to Moses. And we all know Moses because of the movie. And we get to the Passover and he says, Take this perfect spotless lamb. Kill it. Put the blood on the doorpost. And the death angel will pass over. But remember what Moses was supposed to tell Pharaoh. He was supposed to tell them, let my people go out to the desert to do what? Worship. Why? Because that's what God is looking for. He's not looking for anything else but worship. In fact, one writer says that missions exist because worship does not. Let that sink in. Missions exist because worship does not. We, we are not looking for anything else but to evangelize to get more worshipers. Because that's what God is looking for. So we see that the children of Israel, they move on out into the desert and they become, well, elaborate almost to the system of worship. Many laws come out in Leviticus. The tabernacle is constructed and we find in the tabernacle, there's an inner court and an outer court. And all the way you go through in there, there's a holy of holies where God himself resides. And between the holy of holies is a big veil representing That God could not be with our sin. And it's humongous. And there's only one person, the high priest, that can come in. But by the time Isaiah comes into the picture, they have really complicated things. In fact, if you were a male at that time, there were nine religious feasts in Israel. But three you had to be required. didn't matter where you lived. You had to come to Jerusalem. And everything's really detailed. And everything is really laid out. And you would think it would be pretty easy to worship. But I want to reread this scripture through the message. And let's see what it says. Why this frenzy of sacrifices? God's asking, don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams and plump grain-fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs, and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the ideal of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship? Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meeting for this, meeting for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion. While you go right on sinning. So we find that God is not pleased. But why? God developed this system. But the problem is, God is not looking for our worship acts. He is looking for a relationship based on love. That's what he wanted. He doesn't need our worship. He wants our worship. So we go a little farther, and we find that the prophets kind of give us a little insight on this. Hosea says... I'm after love that lasts. Not sacrifice, but knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In fact, the message says it like this. I'm after love that lasts. Not more religion. I want you to know God, not to go to more prayer meetings. Because worship... Is about a relationship. And they've missed the point. So in this clearly defined system, they missed it. And you might say, no, 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 no. That was just Old Testament and we're really good. Well, go with me for a second. Jesus comes on the scene really quick afterwards, right? And he's really radical, isn't he? He says things like, uh, you know, that adultery thing. Yeah, um, you're not supposed to do it, but you're not supposed to think about it either. And he says things like, uh, love your God and your neighbor. He's radical and to the point that he ends up going to a cross because the religious people, they really didn't like it. They didn't like what he had to say. And we found out in Hebrews a couple of months ago, when Jesus dies, that veil that we talked about just a second ago was ripped in two and that we find out that God now is our mediator and our priest, king, and we no longer need a priest on this earth. So you might say, well, see, that was just an Old Testament thing. All this worship stuff, that doesn't apply to us. Well, fast forward a little bit. There's this guy named Paul. You might have heard of him. He wrote a little. Just just a little. And he's talking in Corinthians, and he says, you know, all these really new cool things that we can do, like uh, prophesy and speak in tongues, and then he says, this is, this is going to be redneck, hillbilly, West Tennessee paraphrase here. He says, "If you can do all that, but it's not worth a hill of beans unless you have love. And so even in Corinthians, Paul is talking, he says, all this worship stuff that you have, if you don't have love, because he remembers Jesus talking about what? Love, your, love God and love your neighbor. And you might say, okay, Well, that's fine. That's Paul. But if you follow church history, it's the same thing. 300 years, they're on the run, and then the Catholic church comes because the Romans says it's really cool to be a Christian now, and then we we stop running and we build cathedrals. And then by the time Martin Luther comes onto the scene, if you think the Jewish calendar was elaborate, man, the Roman Catholic system was... Extreme. You had a feast almost every day. You could worship something or do something every day. And Martin Luther comes on the scene and he says, hey, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think worship should be about um, uh, the people. I think it should be about the people and that worship practices should be in our tongue and we should actually sing songs that are actually, you know, in the native tongue. And so that Reformation comes because of worship practices. We become, we come out of a tradition called the Restoration Movement and we find ourselves saying a couple of hundred years later from Luther saying that we should have no other creed but Christ, that we should go back to New Testament principles of communion, There's a pattern that happened all the way from the beginning of the garden to even now. Because when we have worship, we have a problem. Because worship is a matter of the heart. And because of that, we're in trouble. What? Worship is a matter of the heart. We find in Jeremiah... It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And this is not a very Americanized thing. We don't like to hear this because we, we've been taught, follow your heart. No, 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 we, we should follow Jesus. And, and we say, no, 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 listen to your heart. We, we're so smart and enlightened, and that's the problem. God is holy, and we're not. And just as it was in Isaiah's time and just as it is in our time, we have a holy God who's looking for a relationship and we bring our heart to the table. And what happens is worship becomes polluted. It can be. And I think that's really a lot of the problem of what has happened with corporate worship and private worship over the last couple of hundred thousand years. So today we're going to spend time on what worship is not and what worship is. Because we know that history shows that every time we we have a way to make worship something that it's not. So we're going to talk about what it's not. Then we're going to talk about what it is. First, worship is not an event. It's not an event. It is not a place. It's not a time. We see in Genesis where, if you'll throw that slide up there, we see in Genesis that uh, Joseph says, swear to me. He said, then Joseph swore swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Notice a couple of things there. There were no bulletins. There was no buildings. There was no organs. There were no drums. There was no pews. There were no chairs. There was man, God, and a staff. And you can eliminate the staff. It was man and God. So worship is not an event. We don't just worship at an appointed time. It's not something that we just do. It could happen anywhere. Number two, worship is not music. A lot of times we get real we get real misnomered here. We'll say, hey, the, um, the worship was really good and the sermon was okay. Or the sermon's okay and the, and the worship was great. But worship is not music. Worship is an act of worship. Or music is an act of worship, as well as praying, as well as communion, as well as offering. It is an act. In fact, we find, in, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 3, God asked for a worship act, a sacrifice. But in chapter 4, you see on the screen that Jubal came along, and he was the father of all who played the heart and the flute in chapter 4. So God was asking for a worship act in chapter 3, long before music was ever put on the scene. Worship is not music. If it's not an event and it's not music, now this one may get get me in trouble. Worship is not about you, nor is it about me. We do not come here for ourselves, we come to glorify God. And when we begin to have statements about worship that involve the words I or we or some of us or, you know, I, I, I really didn't like that, without asking the first important question. And what is that, Eric? Was God glorified today? And we don't do that. I'm the biggest one. I'll walk out and I'll start going, was that, was, was that good? Was that good? And I forget to ask the very per- most important thing. Was God glorified in worship and was god glorified through what i did in worship today no we don't ask that and when we start to use these statements of i and we we are searching for the church of me not the church of christ that god has intended us to have because worship is not about primarily getting anything yes when we come to worship we we receive his word and we receive we receive his blessings but worship is not primarily about getting anything. He's the object of worship, not us. I'd like us to play a clip in the uh, in the booth for us. I'd like you to watch this. <laughs> Did you get anything out of that? Did you get anything out of that? Not really. Unless you probably speak Zimbabwe, you probably didn't get anything out of it. But guess what? God did. God was glorified through those songs from the people who worshipped him. And so if you grew up in not a church tradition and you never had a hymnal or or an organ and and all this is kind of new to you and you don't really get that part of worship, guess what? It wasn't for you but it was for the person who hangs onto that hymnal and sings and through that song responds to God and God is glorified. On the flip, if you grew up in church all your life and you were taught that the guitar and the drums were from the devil and you don't get, uh, you don't get like praise and worship music, you, you just don't understand it, and you're not getting anything at that moment, guess what? It's okay. Because if somebody interacts with God at that moment, who is the object of worship for? God or us. So worship is not about us. Worship is not about our preferences. We begin to grade worship on a scale. And worship is not about our service. It's not about what we do when we come here. So if that's not what worship is, let's talk about what it's not, let's talk about what worship is. So I have, a, I have a good systematic theology type definition and we'll unpack it. So here it is. Biblical worship is God's covenant people recognizing, reveling in, and responding rightly to the glory of God in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll read that again. Biblical worship is God's covenant people recognizing, reveling in, and responding rightly to the glory of God in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to unpack each one of those phrases. I don't have time to write uh, to look at all these scriptures, but I have them in your notes. I I implore you to go home and research this. Don't just take my word for it. Open up your Bible and read it yourself, and and discover about this great book about worship. So biblical worship to separate what we do as Christians from all other types of worship. This also implies that God is the one who determines how we should worship. We're different. We we worship from the Bible. We don't worship like the Hindus. We worship a God that is living. So biblical worship determines how we should worship him. So sometimes we may be in a meeting, and I may ask you something like, why do we do things the way that we do? And what I'm looking for is, where did we get that? Did we get it from man, or did we get it from the Bible? Because biblical worship, God determines what we do when we gather. Number two is God's covenant people. God's plan from the beginning of creation has been to redeem a people for his own possession who would give him glory endlessly. The basis of our relationship with him is his unchanging character, his unfailing love, and his unrepeatable sacrifice for our sin. We are His people, bought with His blood, and we deserve nothing less than judgment, but because of Him, we worship Him. Recognizing. This implies mental awareness and perception, as opposed to a highly individualized emotional encounter. Worship is not all about goosebumps and pimples and type things. It is an intellectual, it's a mental awareness and perception. It is what we come, we come prepared, we study, and because we study, we know what we're worshiping. We know how good God is. We know how big God is. We know how worthy He is to be worshipped. Because we recognize Him. Uh, here's my favorite, reveling in. One of the definitions of revel is to get great pleasure from. It is in that sense that we revel in God's glory in Christ. When we find our highest joy, pleasure, satisfaction in knowing God, we are worshiping Him. Although worshiping God involves more than our emotions, it doesn't involve any less. Yes, there's an intellectual part, but we... This is also redneck hillbilly stuff. So, if they don't crank your tractor, something's wrong. <laughs> and that's just the truth. That's what we say in North Alabama, West Tennessee. Worship, we should revel in Him. We should be excited to listen to what He has to say to us. We should be anticipating. Just like when you... When you went out on that first date with that woman that you're going to marry, and you anticipated going on that date, worship should be more. Should be more than that. We should revel in our Christ, he's deserving of it and responding rightly. There are countless wrong ways to respond to God including ungratefulness, anger, and idolatry. Our right responses include both adoration and action, both what we do in specific meetings as well in all of life. Because we know, because we've recognized what He's done, we begin to adore Him, just like that song said just a minute ago. We fall in love with Him, and because of our adoration, then action springs forth. I do things for my wife because I love her. Not because I'm supposed to. Even though that might be debatable. And, uh, but we come adoration and action. We respond rightly to Him. To God's glory in Christ. We have been saved to see that God's glory has been most clearly revealed in the person and work of His Son. This is a precious truth that we must proclaim and protect. God's glory is fully revealed in our Christ. When we begin to look at the face of Christ, when we begin to seek Him out through Scripture, through prayer, we begin a process that is contagious in the power of the Holy Spirit. While they may disagree... Charismatics and non-charismatics both can affirm that worship of God is impossible apart from the power of God. We're not worshiping without Him. Alright, if that was a little too tough, if you're a child, if, uh, if you just didn't plow along with me, track with me, I gotta, I've got one, a little simpler definition. You can tell what you worship by what you spend your time, energy, and your money on. You can tell what you worship by what you spend your time, energy, and your money on. you spend all your time here at church being ungrateful about everything and not about proclaiming Christ, that's what you worship. If you spend your time and your energy on sports like I used to, guess what? I worshiped U.T. The God my God was U.T. Knoxville might have been Mecca, might as well have been Mecca for me. That was my holy pilgrimage every week. Because that's what I spent my time, my energy, and that's what I talked about on, the, on every day. Because that's what you worship. Jesus said something about, you know, where your joy and your treasure is. That's where your heart is. <clears throat> Look at your bank statements and your calendar. You can find quickly what you worship. Where your priorities are. Romans 12.1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Let me say that again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Let's stop right there. In view of everything God has ever done for you, ever will do for you, he is ever planning to do for you, in view of God's mercy. And we are all under his mercy, are we not? So in view of His mercy, we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Going back to that Old Testament concept Paul does. This time, they're not dead sacrifices. They're living. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is both private and corporate. What we do privately on a weekly basis... Should come forth together in corporate worship, and it should spring out of us. I got three stories and I'm done. So, Ben, come on up. My first church that I ever worked at, there was a guy named Ron Seely, and we had a um, we had a we had a school there, and we had a got a silly rule that if you were a member of uh, if you worked at the school you had to be a member of the church that was a kind of a bad rule ron Seely had already been there about 30 years by the time i had uh, got there he was an usher ron never came into the service other than when it was time to take up the plate we tried to get him into Sunday schools. We tried to get him into visitation. We tried to get him to do anything. And we tried to even put a TV out in the mono, in, in the vestibule. He didn't want any of that. He just wanted to come and pass the plate and go home. But if you talk to him, he'd say, I worship. But when you talk to him, because we worked with him daily, there was... Very little proof that he read scripture, talked about it, or anything. And I'm not judging. I'm just saying that by the time I left, the next uh, staff that came in, he had a little chair out there that was we called we kind of kidded in the staff the Ron Seely Memorial Chair because it was his chair. They took it out of there, and he never came back because he didn't have a chair. There's a lady that um, in another church that I worked at that she spent 30 years doing nothing but staying in the, uh, in the nursery. Didn't want to come out of the nursery, didn't want to do anything but be in the nursery. Never, never was in a Bible study, never wanted to be in a, in a small group, never wanted to do anything. Her worship was in there. And from the ladies that did help with her, Basically, her time was just to sit and complain about everything that she never actually saw with her own eyes. But if you asked her, she worshipped. There was a young man who grew up in a great, great church with a great Bible teacher as a father. And his father believed in Deuteronomy and he taught him along the sides of the road just like they said. And everything he taught him. And that young man learned about the names of Christ and knew all of the theology that meant what, what it was to be a Christian. And he went down and he, and he went through the motions and he, he got baptized and he signed a card and he became a church member. But there was always something missing. So he thought you know, when I, when I graduate college, that will satisfy my hunger and I'll start working. And that happened and it didn't. It didn't satisfy it. And that young man said, no, 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 when I get married, that, that will quench that desire. So he got married. Still it didn't happen. He said, when I have a child, that will totally change everything. And he didn't. That young man went out to a contemporary Christian concert one day. And there was a guy preaching in between the service, and he was preaching about Nicodemus. You know, you know, good old Nick. Nick asked Jesus the question, he says, how can a man be born a second time? And the guy was sitting there thinking, man, I've been in church all my life. I could probably preach better than that. And then something happened. And the Holy Spirit came in convicted, and I gave my life to Christ that day. And I'm going to tell you that Sunday when I had to walk down the aisle to my church family and tell my pastor that I had played charades for several years of my life, there was a lot of, sh- there was a lot of people that just kind of shook their heads. Because I'd worked in youth and I had worked in, with children and I had done a lot of things. I knew the names of God, but I didn't know God. And I knew how to worship, but I never worshiped until that Sunday morning. So today, there may be some here that can say, I can relate to that. And we'll give you an opportunity here in a moment. There is no shame for playing charades. It's shame for never omitting it. Never owning up. Today, we're going to open up an invitation. You may, you may feel that same way and you might want to come down. You might be looking for a church home and we will gladly welcome you. You might want to, I'm not even sure this is part of our tradition, but come and rededicate your life today. But God is serious about worship because He's looking for people that He can have a relationship with not somebody that can just do the motions. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going, to, we're going to open up in the invitation. Let's pray. Father God, it's so easy to just go through the motions and never give you the glory. To come in, set an autopilot, and never engage with you, the big glorious God who created this whole earth. Father, if there is anyone here today, anyone that has played charades, let him make it right with you today. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.